Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features expert insights on treating patients with cholangiocarcinoma with Dr. Lipica Goyle from the Harvard Medical School and from the Massachusetts General Hospital, Christine Chow, Senior Attending Oncology Pharmacist, and Caroline Kuhlman, a nurse practitioner in the Department of Gastrointestinal Oncology. This episode is part of a larger program titled Application of Precision Medicine Approaches in the Management of Cholangiocarcinoma, Education and Resources to Guide Clinical Practice. Topics that will be discussed in this episode include how these experts in cholangiocarcinoma care are currently managing their patients, including initial diagnosis, biomarker testing to guide treatment decisions, adverse event management, and patient counseling. For more information on our expert panel, along with a link to the complete program for additional educational activities, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. So Christine and Caroline, it's such a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, We're talking about cholangiocarcinoma and sharing what we know about how to help patients. And I look forward to a great discussion with both of you. You know, a 37-year-old woman who presented to a local emergency room with abdominal pain, and she was found to have elevated liver tests. The emergency room did an ultrasound. They saw a mass, and then she went on to have a CT of her abdomen and pelvis. And that showed, indeed, a six-centimeter mass. And so, Caroline, this is not an uncommon scenario that we see where patients have been diagnosed with a mass on their CT, and then they're looking for next steps. So tell me a little bit about how we approach these patients in clinic. Yes, we commonly see patients in this situation. The workup to continue so that we know, now that we know that there are these abnormal findings on the imaging is to then understand the diagnosis. And that would involve getting a tissue diagnosis or a liver biopsy of one of these lesions. And then to also get full staging, getting a CAT scan of the chest to be sure that we have a full understanding of the extent of the disease. And once that information is obtained and we have a diagnosis, a tissue diagnosis, we can move forward with planning appropriate care. Yeah, exactly. And when we see women as young as this, 37 years old, you know, the more common diagnoses are something like colon cancer with liver metastases. But we do occasionally also see primary liver tumors like cholangiocarcinoma. You know, Caroline, so many patients, when they come into our office, they're like, cholangio what? They're not even able to pronounce it. How do you talk to people about when people say, Caroline, what is my diagnosis? What does that mean? Right. And, you know, it isn't one of those easy to understand cancers based on its name. So we explained to them that a, a cholangiocarcinoma is a cancer that arises in the bile ducts in the liver. And it's broken into two essentially two groups. You can have an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, which is arises in the bile ducts within the liver, or you can have an extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And the intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, it's considered a primary liver cancer. It is a surgically curable disease. And in a setting where you have lesions outside of the bile duct, a lesion that isn't amenable to resection, we consider that stage four disease, which means that we don't consider local therapies. We consider systemic therapy to be the mainstay. Think of the systemic therapies, they sort of go into three buckets. 
and they are chemotherapy, targeted therapies, or immunotherapies. And our first-line therapies generally include chemotherapy and sometimes uh, in combination with immunotherapy. And then our second-line therapies often include looking at a targeted therapy. And so part of our initial workup when we see a patient is to talk about biomarker testing. And the reason it's important is that the more we can learn about their tumor, the characteristics of their tumor, the more helpful that is in helping guide the treatment options for patients. We do it early because that testing can take time and it can help inform future treatment options for the patient. Even if those targeted therapies aren't part of the first line therapy, we are always thinking about what's plan B, what's our second step. You know, in an anxious time for patients, this is, you know, to hear you have an incurable disease, but we're always evaluating the patients based on their health literacy, their health status, what are your goals in pursuing treatment and helping to support them and their family as they make a plan to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up this idea about early stage disease versus late stage disease. About 20% of patients with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, which is what this patient ended up having, are resectable and, as you mentioned, have a chance at cure. Unfortunately, it's a disease that there are not currently good screening tests for, and it's a rather rapidly progressive and aggressive disease. And so we often catch this at a late stage where people are more candidates for systemic therapy, as you mentioned. I'm also so glad that you mentioned this idea of doing biomarker testing early. You know, 10 years ago, all we had this disease was chemotherapy, as you know. And one of the biggest pieces of progress we've made in the last five years has been the development of targeted therapies for these mutations that we're seeing for patients. And so the other component that you mentioned was the anxiety component. You know, a 37-year-old woman, this woman had a five-year-old son. What do you tell people about the first couple of months of this diagnosis and how it's going to go and how we can support them? Well, I think, you know, our primary goal is to help people do as well as they can for as long as they can. And the way we begin that journey is to say that the chemotherapy and the treatments are, you know, our tools to address symptoms that they may have, to make sure that we're not only helping them feel well, but be able to live as long as they can, to be able to achieve their goals and help them think a little bit about what their priorities are, understand what their support systems are, making sure we're offering them support, their family support as well. It's a very hard place to start, but once we get rolling with treatment and, you know, sort of establish our commitment to helping them you know, really traverse this path and do as well as they can, people often get to a place where they're, you know, ready to have a plan and ready to to take their next step. Yeah, absolutely. And Christine, something that patients ask us when they come into our clinic is they're having difficulty sleeping in those first couple of weeks or months when they're first diagnosed because they have racing thoughts, they're anxious, they're thinking about what it's going to mean for their family and for their own lives and starting chemotherapy. Do you have any recommendations on the initial acute phase when someone is first diagnosed for sleeping medications to help with insomnia when it's something that's often temporary? I think first of all, it's important to let the patient know what they need to expect, like what is the uh, treatment plan and what are the possible side effects. So they kind of have an idea uh, what is the prognosis or what they're looking forward in the future. 
then definitely there are medications to help them um, sleep. Like we uh, commonly can prescribe like benzodiazepine, like lorazepam to help sleeping. And we can adjust um, based on the patient's need as well. Thank you very much, Christine. Yeah, important. And it's, Caroline, something that you do so well is you help set people's expectations. Just having exactly as Christine said, an idea of what's ahead, that definitely decreases anxiety. I think also sort of looking at the coming months of initiating treatment and taking it just small blocks of time, trying to look at three months at a time and evaluating, you know, we're going to keep evaluating your response to treatment and then make decisions about moving forward and letting them know, you know, they don't have to take it all on. We can take it little bits at a time. And I think the lorazepam to help with sleep, anxiety, you know, to really help them navigate those racing thoughts and, and anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this patient ended up having a biopsy. It did show intrahepatic glangiocarcinoma. Her CA-199 was around 2000. She had a CT chest. It did show that she had lung metastases, unfortunately. And so there are three different options that we think about, two that are standard of care, one that might become a standard of care. So gemcitabine and cisplatin are two chemotherapy agents that have been the standard for a little over a decade. This is based on the ABCO2 trial of these two chemotherapy agents versus gemcitabine alone in patients with advanced biliary tract cancers, which as Caroline mentioned, is intrahepatic glangiocarcinoma, extrahepatic glangiocarcinoma, and the two other biliary tract cancers are gallbladder cancer and periampular cancer. And in that trial, gemcitabine and cisplatin had immediate patients in that group had a median survival of a little over 11 months compared to a little over eight months with gemcitabine alone. And so that doublet became the standard. A new triplet has become the standard of care for patients with advanced biliary tract cancer. And as Caroline mentioned, we sometimes add immunotherapy in the front line. So this is the new standard now, gemcitabine, cisplatin, dervalimab. This was the Topaz-1 study. It was this triplet compared to the standard of care, gemcitabine and cisplatin alone. And in this trial, patients who got the triplet, you know, with the dervalimab, those patients lived a little over 12 months as the median compared to the doublet, which was a little over 11 months. So it was about a one-month improvement in median overall survival. And importantly, at two years, about 25% of people were still alive in the gemcitabine cisplatin dervalimab arm. And that kind of tail on the curve is what uh, a lot of people are saying we need to pay attention to because some people are having some really long-term benefit. And two years, of course, does not seem like long-term uh, in cancer. And we want those to be five, six, 10 years. Um, and I think the data will mature over time and we'll see how long people are able to live on that regimen. There's another triplet regimen, gemcitabine, cisplatin, abraxane. And so this triple regimen is actually going up against gemcitabine, cisplatin in a randomized phase three trial in the United States, which is the first randomized phase three trial in biliary tract cancer in this country. And it's called the SWOG 1815 study. The phase two single arm study showed, again, a response rate of a little over 40% and a median overall survival around 19 months. And that was in roughly 60 patients. So hopefully we'll have a couple of different standards that we can offer patients. And Caroline, when you see someone who's coming into our clinic and we're trying to figure out, are they candidates for a doublet chemotherapy, triplet chemotherapy, what should we do? What are some of the questions and laboratory value you're looking at to see what kind of therapy to give people up front? Well, I think understanding their other health problems, 
you know, what are their comorbid illnesses? Do they have uh, a lot of other medical problems? And, you know, their age certainly can impact how you think about which regimen might be appropriate for them. You know, the two-drug regimen as the backbone, anytime you add a drug to that, you're going to potentially add a risk of more side effects. And I think it's also relevant to sort of figure out from patients, you know, what what are your goals? How do you want to spend this time? Like, are you very adverse to any extreme side effects? Or it's okay, your life will allow you to, to manage that. A young mother with kids, you know, you would think, well, she's young and healthy and maybe she would tolerate a triplet regimen without problems, but it may be that she's a primary caregiver and the idea that she'll be out of commission, maybe she doesn't have a lot of social supports or family. And then you have to sort of factor that into your decision-making about what's the most appropriate regimen. You know, in this situation, it would seem because she's young and, and if she's otherwise healthy, you probably would lean toward a three-drug regimen for her. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would recommend gemcitabine, cisplatin, and durvalumab for her, given she has metastatic disease and it's the new standard. So Christine, Caroline talked a little bit about side effects. Could you tell us a little bit about <clears throat> side effects with gemcitabine, cisplatin alone as the backbone and then adding these other agents? Sure. So besides bone marrow suppression, nausea, vomiting, and repatria, the other common side effects of gemcitabine include like drug fever, flu-like symptoms, edema, and skin rash. The real and more serious adverse effects uh, include hepatotoxicity, interstitial pneumonitis, and hemolytic uremia syndrome. For um, the duvalumab, because it is a PDL1 inhibitor, so the side effect is very similar to the whole class. It's generally very uh, well tolerated compared to chemo. Uh, common adverse effects of, uh, include like fatigue and decreased appetite. Patients can also experience immune-mediated adverse events, including dermatitis, which can be manifest as skin rash and itching, colitis with diarrhea as the primary symptoms, endocrinopathy such as thyroid disorders, diabetes, and adrenal insufficiency. Severe immune-mediated adverse events such as hepatitis, pneumonitis, pancreatitis, gastritis, nephritis, myocarditis, or toxicity may occur. So it's very important to counsel patients on the signs and symptoms of these immune-mediated adverse events and discuss the necessity of early recognition and management. So for patients who are immunocompromised, then we have to consider whether using Devaramel would be appropriate in this patient populations. As for net agatexel, the main concern um, is hepatotoxicity. So we may have to delete uh, using net agatexel in patients with hepatic impairment. One of the questions many people ask is, how much toxicity does the third agent Devaramel add to gemcitabine cisplatin alone? Very good question. So um, in the TOPAS-1 study, the addition of development did not cause any new serious side effects. And the most common side effects are still related to the chemo, like anemia, neutropenia, and nausea. So this is very encouraging to patients. Indeed, indeed. I would say the exact same thing. I also noticed that in the Topaz-1 study, the immune-mediated adverse events was about 13% in the Dervalumab arm and about 5% in the Gemsys placebo arm. Okay, well, that's terrific. Let's now move on to Caroline. When you see people who come in and they're having 
nausea or having neuropathy or what are the kinds of things that you think about, okay, let's give supportive more, let's try to escalate our supportive care versus when do you think about dose reductions and dose holds? Yes, toxicity that really limits your uh, function or impacts your quality of life in a way that the patient finds unacceptable is a time where we're going to think about dose adjustments and increasing our supportive care interventions. The dose adjustments, they're fairly standard. You know, our first pass might be a 20% dose reduction in the chemotherapy and then versus just a plain old hold and see how patients, you know, let them recover from either a heme toxicity or to assess neuropathy or other lab values that are abnormal like kidney function or liver function let that resolve to a grade one or better, and then make an adjustment to move forward. You know, there's flexibility in scheduling. Instead of doing two weeks in a row with a one-week break, maybe we do every other week. We want them to continue to function and do what they can do and be with their families without just giving them chemo that makes them so sick they can't get out of bed. That's not the goal. Um, And then to be, you know, reminding them that any side effect they're having trouble managing or they didn't expect and don't know what to do about that, they call early and involve their care, you know, their caregivers at the hospital as early as possible so that we can keep them from having a serious problem or needing a hospitalization. Yeah, indeed. We always tell our patients together, never worry alone. Call us or never worrying alone. And the other thing is, you know, we often with this regimen, gemcitabine and cisplatin, give it for six months and then consider whether we're going to continue or stop. Because in the ABCO2 trial, it was only given for six months. And then one trial that added duralumab, the GEMSYS was given for six months, and then people were continued on duralumab, or they were continued, you know, they did not get any further therapy. And so during those six months, you know, we certainly find that almost no one gets to those six months without dose reductions or without dose holds. So on the very first day of chemotherapy, Caroline, I fear you and I always say, you're going to need a dose hold or a dose reduction at some point during the next six months and probably multiple of them, just so people don't get surprised by that or feel like they're not quite on the right train. You know, because I think people feel disappointed, understandably, if we're reducing their chemo. But as Christine was saying from the very beginning of this, as long as you can set people's expectations of like, this is what the normal course looks like, I think people can manage it much better. Okay, let's move on to what happened in this patient's care. This patient went on to receive gemcitabine, cisplatin, durvalumab, and did very well for nine months. But then the patient had progression in their lungs. As Caroline mentioned, we do this biomarker testing right from the very beginning while they're on gemcitabine and cisplatin, or sometimes when they walk in the door, if we have a frontline trial of targeted therapy. And this patient was found to have an FGFR2 fusion. We've now started thinking about cancer in different molecular buckets. And we now group patients with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma into those that have the FGFR2 fusion. And then there's some other actionable alterations that we see on this genomic sequencing that we do on everybody. And those are, so the FGFR2 fusions, you see in about 10 to 15% of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. IDH1 mutations, you see in about 15 to 20%. BRAF, V600E mutations, you see in 4 to 5%. For two amplifications, also about three to five percent in intrahepatic cholangio, much more common in gallbladder cancer and extrahepatic cholangio, up to 10 to 15 percent. Then NTRAC fusions, which you see in less than one percent of patients with intrahepatic cholangio, 
microsatellite instability or high tumor mutational burden. These are also rather rare, one to 2% across the biliary tract cancers. So a lot of these different alterations now have targeted therapies that are on the NCCN guidelines. And two of these alterations have FDA-approved drugs. So for the FGFR2 fusions, we have infragratinib and pemigatinib. For the IDH1 mutation, we have evocitinib. And these are medications that we certainly offer to our patients after they have progression on first-line therapy. For BRAF B600E mutations, we have a combination of trametinib and dabrafenib on the NCCN guidelines. For HER2 amplification, there was a trial, the MyPathway trial, that was just published last year, showing the combination of trastuzumab and pertuzumab as a 23% response rate in biliary tract cancers. Maybe that will make it on the NCCN guidelines soon. For NTRAC fusions, we have larotractinib and entractinib, which have tissue agnostic FDA approvals. And for satellite high and high tumor mutational burden tumors, we have pembrolizumab, also tissue agnostic approvals. So about 40 to 50% of patients with intrahepatic cholangio have these actionable alterations. With extrahepatic cholangio, it's probably closer to 50 to 20% of patients. So it's incredibly important, as Caroline mentioned, to do this biomarker testing early so we can open up options for patients. So, Christine, can you tell us a little bit about some of the side effects of the FGFR inhibitors and the kind of monitoring we need to do in the clinic? Absolutely. So, for FGFR inhibitors, the biggest concern for us is hyperphosphatemia, uh, which is a recognized on-target effect of the inhibitors of FGFR pathway. Um, it's mainly driven by inhibition of the FGFR1 segment. When we inhibit FGFR1, we end up seeing hyperphosphatemia because we disrupt the access between FGF23 ligand with the FGFR1, which is the receptor in the kidney, and patients will not be able to excrete the phosphorus in their urine. So what we see is elevated phosphorus level in the serum. Uh, it's the most common side effect we see with FGFR inhibitors, affecting about 70 to 90% of patients, and the mean time to onset is about eight days. Um, the main concern for hyperphosphatemia is the development of crystallization, which can lead to soft tissue mineralization, cutaneous calcification, vascular calcification, and calciferous crystals in the retina, in muscle, and in skin. It's something that we definitely need to closely monitor during the whole course um, when patients are on this drug. And we need to check phosphate level at baseline and one week later. Uh, most patients should follow a low phosphate diet. If needed, we need to uh, start a phosphate lowering therapy like phosphate binder. The other side effect we see with FGFR inhibitors is that uh, ocular toxicity. So while dry eye is the most common disorder, more serious retinal toxicity occurs in about 5 to 10% of the patients. Patients can have retinal detachment and central serous retinopathy. So it is very important to instruct the patients to report any vision changes right away. A patient should be counseled for what kind of vision symptoms to monitor, like including blue vision, visual floaters, halos, and flashes of light. Those are signs that they may have retinal issues. All the patients should have comprehensive eye exam at baseline before they start treatment and periodically thereafter during the whole course of therapy. If they start to complain of any visual symptoms, we need to refer them to urgent ophthalmology evaluation to see if they have retinal detachment or flu build up behind their eye. Um, some of these 
uh, of pelvic toxicity will require potential dose introduction on discontinuation of treatment. Uh, dermatologic toxicity are another common concern of FGFR inhibitors. So some patients can develop nail changes with median time onset around six months. Uh, they can see discoloration of the nails, nail region, breakage of nails, hierarchia, and sometimes they can have even separation of nail from nail bag called onycholysis, which can be very painful. Primary plantar arifloidesthesias or hand-foot syndrome is also quite common with FGFR inhibitors. It's often seen later cause after several months on the FGFR inhibitors because it is a cumulative toxicity. So we typically will advise patients to apply thick emollient cream to their hands and feet and avoid activities that may cause friction and pressure on the hands and feet. Other issues a patient can have include dry skin and alopecia. Uh, very interestingly, while patients can lose hair on their head, they may start to grow more eyelashes. Lastly, patients may experience GI toxicity such as diarrhea, mucositis, dyscocia, uh, nausea, and dry mouth. Thank you for that very thorough review, Christine. That was super helpful. Um, yeah, indeed, we see hyperphosphatemia very commonly because, as you said, it's an on-target, off-tumor effect of the FGFR inhibitors where we're hitting FGFR1, but in clandestine <coughs> carcinoma, we're trying to hit FGFR2. And so, you know, in many patients, it's just a lab abnormality and they don't feel anything. But as you were mentioning, there is a risk of calciphylaxis or mineralization with calcium, with the calcium and phosphate binding, the deposition of calcium phosphate crystals behind the eyes, in the muscles, et cetera. And so generally my practice is if the phosphorus is greater than seven, uh, I still continue them on the FGFR inhibitor, but start the sevolumer or the FOS binders that you mentioned. Caroline, can you share what are some of the other interventions we recommend for people in addition to starting the FOS binders? Yes, of course, you know, getting less phosphorus in your diet will also help. So we encourage patients to stick to a low phosphorus diet. We give them a little worksheet that includes foods to avoid while they're on the medication. We present them with a prescription for the phosphinding agents when we first start the drug, because sometimes there's some difficulties with uh, insurance approval for some of the agents like Sevlamer. We have them come back a week later, monitor what their phosphorus level is, and then if it's elevated, we then initiate the phosphorus binder. We encourage, you know, hydration, keeping a patient well hydrated, making sure their bowels function normally will also aid in this process of phosphorus excretions. Yes, absolutely. And we even sometimes refer patients to nutrition to give them yes. some advice. I mean, a low phosphorus diet is not easy because anything with dairy has phosphorus. So cheese, ice cream, yogurt milk, you know, a lot of my favorite things. And so the good news is that after people have been on an FGFR inhibitor for a while, their body actually gets used to it and they often need less FOS binders and they can normally go back to a regular diet over time. And so that's uh, something that's been helpful to understand about this class of drugs. I was going to say, and the hand foot syndrome and the nail changes, those are really significant quality of life issues for patients. And all of the suggestions that Christine provided, they're excellent. We also often engage our derm, our dermatology colleagues to help navigate. I mean, patients can lose their fingernails, you know, their hands can hurt and just be very, very uncomfortable. And for the nails, so we can ask the patients 
to trim their distal nails, and they can also apply other solution under the nails. Yeah, we will often seek the specialty care of podiatry, dermatology, and then as Christine mentioned, ophthalmology to help manage some of the side effects on these drugs. Um, Christine, how about IDH1 inhibitors, another common class given this mutation is seen in 15 to 20% of patients with intrahepatic cholangio? So the one uh, IDH1 inhibitor that is FDA approved, like you mentioned, is ivocetinib. The drug is generally very well tolerated. The most common adverse effects of ivocetinib are nausea. Uh, diarrhea is another common side effect. It is very important to know that ivocetinib may prolong QT prolongation. So cavity monitoring should be performed in all patients. That's great. Yeah, exactly. That's been my experience, Christine, in the clinic. Evocidinib is very well tolerated. The main thing, as you mentioned, is the QT prolongation to be aware of. The one medication that we sometimes use in oncology to help these patients is ondansetron because these patients sometimes get nausea with evocidinib or just have nausea because of their disease. And then sometimes, as Christine mentioned, people get biliary obstruction as a complication of cholangiocarcinoma. And then they're put on the fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, and those also prolong QT. But those are some considerations in patients with cholangiocarcinoma. Okay, fantastic. Well, our last question is around acquired resistance. You know, the big question these days is when the FGFR inhibitors stop working or when other targeted therapies stop working, how do we figure out why the drugs failed and how do we figure out what to give patients next? And so in cholangiocarcinoma, the most work on resistance has been done in patients with FGFR2 fusion positive cholangiocarcinoma who go on the ATP competitive FGFR inhibitors. And we use serial tumor biopsy and also serial assessment of circulating tumor DNA, which is DNA that's shed into the bloodstream from the tumors in the organs. And we sample this DNA, sequence it the way we sequence tumor biopsy tissue and try to understand what are the mechanisms of resistance to the FGFR inhibitors. And what we have found is many patients develop mutations in the target area itself. So people develop mutations in the kinase domain of the FGF receptor. And so then we use next generation inhibitors to try to overcome that resistance. And there's a drug that has breakthrough designation right now with the FDA. It's called Fudibatinib. It's a covalently binding inhibitor, which is different than the two current FGFR inhibitors, which are ATP competitive inhibitors. And there's been some anecdotal work showing, some anecdotal publications showing that uh, fudibatinib can prolong the benefit of FGFR inhibition in patients who have already been treated with an ATP competitive inhibitor because it can overcome some of that resistance. There are many new drugs in this space, and there are many new uh, covalent inhibitors for FGFR that are being developed that can potentially overcome resistance. So we look forward to seeing the development of these drugs. Christine and Caroline, any closing thoughts on things to share with our providers who take care of patients with cholangiocarcinoma? You both are experts in this, and I've enjoyed taking care of patients for several years with both of you. Uh, we need to tell the patients about strategies that can help them with uh, adherence. If the patient is not taking uh, medication appropriately, this can affect efficacy and impact the safety of the agent. Pharmacist counseling should determine what kind of barriers that are present, and then try to find ways to help patients to improve the adherence. Um, some barrier to watch out is the drug obtainment, cost, other barriers, including patient education and mental status. It's important to prevent and manage the side effects before patients want to 
discontinue due to the adverse events. Uh, there are some tools that can help to patients to increase their adherence, uh, including that medication diary to check off uh, when they take the drug. It's especially important for math medication that are not confused dose. And then they can start up recording alarm on the phone to remind them to take medication on a regular basis. So in general, I think that um, all of the uh, groups can work together uh, to make sure that the patients um, have good communication with our team and then help them to find ways to improve their adherence. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I would I would just add that often when patients go on oral agents uh, for their treatment, there's maybe a feeling that, oh, I'm taking a pill at home. So how how difficult or challenging can this be? But these medications obviously have pretty significant side effects and really encouraging patients to keep that open line of communication, reporting their side effects, not just holding the medication randomly when they feel, you know, oh, I'm having, I'm not feeling as good today, so maybe I'll skip my dose, but really continuing to communicate early and often about side effects that are challenging for them. So as Christine mentioned, we can keep them on track and give them the best response. Thank you very much, Caroline and Christine. It's a great note to end on the importance of great communication with our patients. I wanted to take this opportunity to thank clinical care options for giving us the opportunity to provide some education around cholangiocarcinoma. There are a lot of new therapies for this disease, a lot, of more, a lot more hope for this disease. So we look forward to much more drug development in this space. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to our panel of experts and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the complete program, Application of Precision Medicine Approaches in the Management of Cholangiocarcinoma, Education and Resources to Guide Clinical Practice, from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.